Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for being here. I'm Boriana Farah. I um, am a vice uh, president and a business development director for North American and the American Club. Um, and I have the, and, and, and thank you very much for being here this morning. Today, uh, let me briefly introduce my uh, panelists. Uh, we have uh, Ted Dimitri from Alliant Insurance Services who flew all the way from Houston. And uh, he is, um, he, he's a vice president and uh, one in one of the leading brokerage firms, Alliant Insurance Services, and he's a specialist in marine and energy. And he's been in the industry working for major insurance brokerage firms for more than 20 years. Uh, we also have uh, Joe Hughes, who is, who is a man who does not need introduction, and I have a fortune, uh, I'm very fortunate to be working with him at uh, uh, Ship Owners Claims Bureau, which is the managing company of the American Club. And he's a CEO and chairman where he has served as a CEO and chairman for more than 20 years. And he has more than 40 years of experience in the insurance industry, working at either other major P&I clubs and also brokerage firms. In addition uh, to um, his uh, role as a CEO and chairman at the American Club, he also oversees uh, Eagle Ocean uh, American affiliate, uh, which uh, operates, e we, we call it EOM and EUA uh, facilities. And he also serves on the board of American Hellenic Hull Insurance Company, uh, which is a subsidiary of the American Club and which um, now provides uh, Hull, Hull uh, services. In addition, to uh, everything he's doing in connection with the American Club. He's a chairman of NAMEPA, and he's also involved in numerous other organizations, which, um, which you all have seen him uh, as esteemed participant and speaker. We also here, uh, ha have here today uh, Chris Moreau, uh, who, is, um, a, 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 who is a president, uh, who is a, okay, who is a, <coughs> at JOT uh, special specialties, and also he's in charge of business development of the of North America, and he's uh, has more than 11 years of experience in the insurance uh, industry, operating as a broker also in major insurance brokerage firms. Uh, he specializes. He's worked in the brown water and blue water sector, and currently is focusing on the blue water sector. And brings uh, a wealth of experience uh, with him. He's also um, a graduate of the Maritime College. He's been served on ships, and he. Uh, we are looking forward to his comments today. And last but not least, we have John Radio, uh, who is one of the founding partners of Sealift Inc., a U.S. ship owner. Uh, your ship owning company, which uh, which uh, we are very fortunate to have as a member, and they have their split their fleet between us and our friends at the London Club. Um, he will bring here the ship owner's perspective, and uh, he has a wealth of experience for more than 20 years, also as a ship broker and now as an owner. So uh, with that, I want to start with uh, the, to, with the first question. We will be discussing several hot topics, and I want to start with Brexit which uh, has been discussed in the industry for several years. And my first question to our panel is, what is your opinion of Brexit and how do you think it affected our industry? Ted. Well, my, my opinion of Brexit is that, uh, you know, that, that I think it caught a lot of people uh, off guard, but it's sort of, uh, it's made a, the, the British people made a statement and uh, 
you know, it was very, uh, I don't know, it was close to 50-50. So it was a narrowly passed measure. It kind of remains to be seen how that will be implemented. I think from a transatlantic standpoint, uh, from an American perspective, at least an American working on the Gulf Coast, it's, it, I don't want to say it's a non-event, but it's not really impacting my business or my client's business all that much. I think Lloyd's of London and uh, other independent British insurers are, they have enough time and they have the will to set up shop in Brussels and maybe even other member states of the EU uh, in order to offset any uh, uh, trade issues that may come up. And I think uh, they're looking at it proactively and, and very, very seriously. Uh, I think it's more of a UK, EU issue from a practical standpoint, but uh, I think it, they'll, they'll take it in stride and I think eventually it'll, it'll um, sort itself out. Thank you. And um, I'm very curious to hear the opinion of Joe Hughes, who is also a British national. Actually, he's yes, I am. I'm a dual national, actually, as uh, Boreana quite correctly states. You made a very good introduction, Boreana, but your reference to my more than 40 years in the industry means, alas, that I can no longer lie about my age, <laughs> which is, you know, a bit of a downside. Nonetheless, what do I think about Brexit? Well, I could keep you here all day, quite frankly, because... Um, I mean, I think there are several dimensions to it, more than several dimensions to it. I mean, it's, it's, first of all, I think as a political statement, it's an absolute disaster for the United Kingdom. Um, I think that it represents an enormous failure of the political classes in Great Britain, frankly. And I think that uh, all the supposed advantages of trying to turn uh, an, an island of 63 million people into some kind of offshore Singapore able to exist, you know, that, that degree of independence and so on of the major markets surrounding it, I think is complete nonsense, to be perfectly honest. And I think that Britain would have been much, much better served as a voice at the table seeking reform of the European Union rather than just divorcing um, themselves entirely from it. From the insurance perspective, um, that law, as Ted said, Lloyd's are making arrangements to set up shop effectively in <coughs> Brussels. I had lunch, uh, as did Boreana, actually, she was there too, about two months ago with Inga Beal, who was the CEO of Lloyd's, and we were talking to her about this, and basically what the plan is, is to have two slips effect effectively. Um, for business coming straight into Lloyd's of Brussels, it's European business, it will be written directly. Um, for business that um, is non-European, that will be done as a, as a reinsurance effectively through the Brussels office. Um, that may, may or may not work effectively. I mean, I, there, there, there's bound to be some degree of, of knock-on effect, I think, of the way in which the establishment there operates. Uh, one can only hope for the best, but I can't believe that it's necessarily uh, going to be as easy as maintaining the status quo going forward. Uh, for, so far as London is concerned as a shipping center in, generally, uh, in general, I think that it would be difficult, although you could say shipping is the ultimate international business and that you know, where you happen to be based is really irrelevant from the point of view of your international outreach. But I think that not being seen to be passported, not being seen to be part of the larger market in that sense, probably will inure to the detriment of uh, London as a shipping center. However, look on the bright side. Um, I'm, on the member, I'm a member of the board of Neymar. Neymar promotes the interests of New York as a maritime center, as a maritime cluster. So this may be a great opportunity for 
New York to take up some of the slack that I suggest might be created by Britain, uh, by Britain and London in, in particular as a center leaving the European Union. So uh, from our point of view here in this city, it could be uh, a good thing actually. It might actually stimulate uh, some further growth in the ancillary services that we offer, perhaps in the insurance side as well, uh, for the global shipping community. But from the British perspective per se, I don't think it's a good thing at all. Thank you very much, Joe. Chris. Yeah, I, th I think from the, the large company perspective, uh, it depends on how large your footprint is over in uh, Britain. And those without a larger footprint will, I believe, will struggle to sort of abide by uh, the requirements of Brexit. Uh, being part of a large international brokerage firm, uh, we already have establishments outside of Britain. So for us, not necessarily, it, it, it won't be a struggle because we have operations up in in Brussels, Ireland, Sweden, Netherlands. So if we can manage sort of the expectations of what Brexit uh, calls for uh, over the next months, uh, so to speak. But I think the real test, what you're gonna see in these sort of sorts of companies, sort of the middle market and smaller markets, how do we abide by that? Uh, is this gonna be sort of a, a, a play on volatility on our side to compete in the market uh, and be able to sort of withstand sort of this, this storm that has been created? Uh, in the company sector. Thank you very much, Chris. And uh, John, what is the owner's perspective? And uh, I know your ships operate in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, from an owner's perspective, um, it doesn't matter too much. But uh, from an insurance and, uh, perspective, and being on a, a committee member of um, a p and club, uh, these uh, U.K. regulated clubs are taking this very serious. Um, they're looking at uh, setting up uh, satellite offices uh, in different countries um, in order to service the uh, EU community. Um, certain countries have been mentioned, uh, Luxembourg, Malta, Cyprus, uh, among many. But I, I think it's gonna be a herd instinct at the end of the day where um, the larger p and London P&I countries will set the stage on where they're going to be domiciled and set up the uh, satellite officers. <laughs> Maybe they're all uh, joining Joe here in America. Who knows? <laughs> I'd make a comment on that. <laughs> but uh, uh, yes. a, a, as, as the last point, yes, it, it is something, no matter where Brexit goes, um, it's being looked at. And um, I think time will tell. It is work in progress. Thank you. Actually, I do, yes, yeah. that's very interesting you say that, John, actually. I think that the uh, St. George's Society of New York is about to have a large influx of new members, potentially, over <laughs> the next couple of years. Um, but actually, you raise an interesting point in regard to the future in that context, because, uh, and I don't know precisely what the details are, and I'm aware of this only in very general terms, there has been an arrangement reached between the NAIC National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which is the overarching governing body of the state insurance regulators across the United States, and the European Commission in regard to mutual recognition of each other's solvency rules. Uh, we, and I, I'm not quite sure what the detail, and I think there's some further steps that need to be taken, and as I say, I'm not quite sure of the detail in regard to that, but that might mean potentially that a US domiciled insurer subject to the regulation of the NAIC might have a much greater free, I mean, this is all sort of counterintuitive, but it might have a much greater freedom of operation within the reformed European Union, 
excluding Britain than a British insurance company might have post-Brexit, which is a very interesting possibility. And it would be therefore very interesting were the regulations to come to that sort of fulfillment that, yes, you might have management companies setting up here if they want to deal with their European members uh, from, from New York rather than from London. It's extraordinarily, as I say, counterintuitive, but that might be the practical result of that development. Very interesting. Thank just you. One more, just one more yes. comment. Um, yep. in, uh, in the UK, the regulations have gotten really out of control. Yes. Uh, and I don't know, Joe is not faced with it, but at these committee meetings, we must spend close to half the time talking about the different regulations and how to meet them. Uh, and I personally getting a little fed up with uh, what's going on. I, I think, again, John, that's absolutely right. Um, the American Club made an investment in um, a Cypriot-based insurance company called American Hellenic Hull. It did so in the middle of last year. It's been very successful. Um, I'm on the board of that uh, company, and we have our board meetings every quarter, uh, mainly in Cyprus, as you might imagine. But Cyprus being a European Union state, as of course Britain is at the moment, um, is subject to the uh, Solvency II uh, regime. And Solvency II is very, very demanding. I mean, excessively so, quite honestly, because you seem to be spending most of your time, uh, rather than doing the business in which you should legitimately be involved, um, writing reports to the regulator about your own risk uh, solvency assessments every two minutes and, you know, you, uh, amendments to your business plan and reporting this and reporting that. And it is incredibly burdensome. And, you, you know, you, you wonder to what real purpose, quite frankly. Admittedly, the regulator here in New York is, um, is no pushover, nor, nor should any regulator be a pushover. But I think it's fair to say that the risk-based capital requirements here in New York are essentially more sensible they're not easy, but they're more sensible than some of the more extravagant elements of solvency too. Thank, thank you very much. And I would like to transition to our next topic, which is pricing, which uh, everyone is excited about. And um, I would like uh, each of you to comment on in pricing when, when it concerns insurance rates. And uh, we're following two trends, the freight market and of course the oil prices. And how do you think that's related to insurance pricing? Well, I think one of the uh, situations that is keenly impacting uh, my sector of the business along the Gulf Coast is uh, not just the impact of Hurricane Harvey, which hit the city where I live, but uh, also the hurricanes Irma and Maria. And from what I've seen so far, uh, there haven't been significant maritime insurance events. There have been a few claims, a few incidents, of course, I'm not minimizing those, but from a macro standpoint, uh, those maritime events haven't been the sort of impacts that maybe Katrina and Rita had and, and Ivan before them in the mid-2000s. Um, however, they are significant events. Uh, Harvey, uh, the latest statistics that I read from Air Worldwide were that uh, Harvey's impact is somewhere between 15 and 25 billion, uh, Irma, somewhere between 30 and 50 billion, Maria, surprisingly, somewhere between 45 and 85 billion. So that's a combined total of insured losses of 130 to 160 billion dollars. Um, that, you know, those, the 
the, uh, the first two hurricanes might not have been enough to move the needle, but uh, I, I think Maria definitely did, and followed by or occurring concurrently with uh, some major earthquakes in Mexico, especially the, uh, the aftershock in Mexico City. Granted, these are not maritime losses, these are not offshore energy losses, but they're going to have an impact, and it's going to reverberate around the global insurance industry, and it's going to really come into sharper focus, I think, in the first quarter of next year when the reinsurance treaties, for the most part, uh, renew. And there's some reinsurers that are already drawing lines in the sand, uh, Munich Re being a standout, uh, some others that are taking more of a wait-and-see approach, but we're going to be looking at maybe a two to three year hard market in the insurance cycle across all lines of business. Thank you very much. Joe? Well, that's very interesting, actually. And I think as a, an insurer, it would be, I mean, except to the extent that this applies to reinsurance, it would be a good thing if there were a hardening of the market, quite honestly. I think all who know our business will recognize that the Howell market in particular has been soft. I almost want to say since time immemorial, but certainly <laughs> over the last 15 or 20 years, there have only been a couple of years in that period where there's been any recognizable sort, sort of hardening in the market. However, uh, claims have been relatively benign over that period on the whole side also. And of course, the real issue is just the huge amount of capacity that has been available to uh, absorb those uh, exposures, or theoretical exposures at least, seeking yield effectively money seeking yield, uh, investors seeking yield by going into insurance investments rather than others. And that has had a, a depressing effect on how P&I is rather similar, uh, not quite as, as extreme perhaps over the years. Again, there's been a P&I uh, cycle that, of, of claims that's been relatively benign, both in relation to retained claims, smaller claims that individual clubs absorb for their own account, and also for the very largest claims within the group pool the Costa Concordia notwithstanding. I was talking a little earlier this morning about the Costa Concordia. That didn't move the dial much, despite a lot of concern originally when it reached the heady heights of $1.5 billion in terms of total, total losses. Um, because, you know, there was, a lot of there was a lot of capacity to go into the market to absorb that. And in the reinsurance area, so far as the international group is concerned, over the last three years, notwithstanding the Costa Concordia, notwithstanding the Rainer, uh, in particular, which is the two largest claims of that particular year, uh, the group has saved its ship owner members $100 million in reinsurance costs over that period. So, you know, there's still plenty of capacity there, and that's had a knock-on effect on, on, uh, on all rates. And, you know, from a the point of view of absorbed claims in the P&I world, again, there's a, a, a relatively low rates. It would be nice if that changed, because I think ultimately, you know, as, as Ted has just said, um, if there is less capacity around because the losses are no longer sustainable for the investors and they remove themselves from the market and rates go up, that'll, I think, be good for the health of the market in a more sustainable sense over time. So I, I think from everybody's point of view, if, if rates do go up at least a bit, that will be for the common good. I think you know, what Ted's point was on sort of the, the re it's going to come down to sort of the reinsurance markets. I think that's where it's going to ultimately begin with is you're going to see this sort of trickle down effect once these, this sort of wind season dies down and the losses are sort of presented to the market and see uh, where we ultimately pan out. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars already estimated 
Uh, and that's really sort of the, the key driver. I mean, it drives the commercial market. It drives, as Joe said, the, the international group of P&I markets. So you, once you start seeing that fall off of potential reinsurers, and Ted pointed out, Munich Re has already come out and sort of given their sort of warnings. Hanover Re came out uh, recently, also did the same thing. You know, and you're dealing with sort of what I think is going to be sort of a, uh, a knock-on effect of, of rating. I think also we're at sort of this leveling off period. I don't necessarily say that we're, we're continuing in sort of a soft cycle. Uh, I think you're starting to see sort of markets take a harder stance whether they're going to continue to write the business or they're not. I don't necessarily see them digging their heels in and sort of flipping the light switch and turning the rates off uh, overnight. I think that it's more sort of we're either in this for the foreseeable future and we're going to ride the storm out or we're, we're going to sort of make our exit strategy. And that's sort of where you see a leveling off in the market. And I think that that's most likely going to be the next six to 12 months in sort of that commercial market. You know, Joe's absolutely right. The, the, claims, the claims activity is sort of benign at the moment. So you're not seeing sort of the trending that we saw, you know, almost 10 years ago when sort of the freight market was at its sort of all-time high. So those, that sort of activity uh, and, and claims volatility isn't uh, present at the moment. You're seeing sort of more sort of larger claims come in as opposed to sort of the attritional sort of um, uh, smaller uh, claims uh, come in. So it's, it's, it's that whole sort of bucket of, you know, is the reinsurance market going to dictate uh, the next six to 12 months and that's when you're going to see sort of the, a transition in the rating model. Again, I don't see it as sort of something that's going to be go from soft to hard. I see this sort of leveling off and sort of you're going to see the stronger survive uh, as opposed to sort of these newer uh, markets try to come in to, to dictate terms. Thank you. John. Well, from an owner's perspective, um, the present pricing in the insurance market is good. Uh, there is a lot of competition. Uh, if you're an owner with a good record and you're going to bring in new tonnage um, into the market, um, you're going to get very competitive pricing. Uh, one of the things I believe is that the uh, P&I clubs are uh, really mispricing uh, new buildings, mm -hmm. uh, very, very low premiums. And uh, I mean, Joe can tell you probably from his experience at some point, uh, they're just too darn low. And this, this trend um, will continue, I believe, because of your overcapacity. So um, right now, uh, I think um, a good business model is to have um, at least uh, two P&I clubs or, um, that you deal with because, again, if you bring in new tonnage with a good record, uh, you're going to be in a very nice position for getting good rates. Thank you. And I'll transition now to our last topic, which is a very hot topic right now, and that's cyber risk. There's been uh, a lot of discussion as to the increased risk in this uh, space, and we have seen a lot of publication and actually a lot of develop developments in the uh, legislative arena, uh, IMO, and also on the local Coast Guard regulation in terms of proposals. But I would like to uh, pose the question to our uh, panel here, Ted. Uh, what, how do you view cyber risk in terms of development and insurance, future insurance products and inquiries from your clients? Well, it's, it's something that, that a lot of our clients and, and uh, prospects inquire about, but it's hard to define. Um, I mean, everyone knows what 
a cyber incident is, but it, it tends to be right now, you know, the, the, the Joe Main Street is going to think of it as sort of a, a target or an Equifax hacking event. Uh, and really, those are, those are notable, but they're sort of the anomalies in the cyber market as a whole. They tend to be um, very low frequency, sorry, very high frequency, low severity events, uh, primarily ransomware, people hacking into systems and grabbing data. And then they hold it for ransom. Uh, one of the uh, uh, general average surveyors that we have a relationship with had their entire London market, sorry, their entire London office data seized and ransomed off. And uh, they, they had to pay for it. And it was an insured event and it was notable, but it wasn't the sort of, you know, paradigm shifting thing that I think we're all afraid of. I think that the insurance market has responded. I think it's responded well, but there's no standardization. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're dealing with a new frontier here, but what is a cyber event? Is it a hacker coming in and ransoming off data? Yes, but is it a system glitch? Is it a satellite malfunctioning and sending a ship off in another direction? Is it a, uh, you know, automated systems? Is it someone, you know, cyber terrorism, someone coming in and hacking a drilling rig or a drill ship or, and trying to cause a blowout? You know, it's hard to define. I mean, a lot of those things are included. A lot of them are not. The wordings are vague, not necessarily specific. Um, we're seeing, obviously, some, as, as was just mentioned, uh, some regulatory enforcements on the rives. In the U.S., it's mostly from a consumer protection and HIPAA compliance standpoint, but the EU has, uh, is putting forward uh, something called the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which uh, the U.S. regulators are looking at closely. So I think what's going to happen is uh, it was adopted in May of 2016. It's going to be implemented in May of next year uh, due to the two-year EU transitionary period, and I think the, the entire world's watching that closely, and we may see some standardization out of that, but it's still a very new frontier, it's a new product, and pricing is aggressive for it. That's a very good comment, and actually there is a lot of noise in the industry about the implementation of this Data Protection um, Act in Europe, especially in the cruise industry, because the implementation period is very short. As a recovering lawyer, I'm very tempted to comment on regulation. <coughs> so, uh, Joe, would you comment, please, on cyber risk developments from a P&I perspective? Well, I think uh, what Ted just said about this being the new frontier from a marine insurance perspective is certainly the case. I mean, people were aware of cyber risk in the uh, marine domain, I think, in, in, a, in a fairly, uh, you know, not, not engaged way, if you could put it, uh, until relatively recently. It's certainly a subject that has risen considerably in importance in the collective consciousness of the marine insurance community. Um, and in, in some respects, again, as, as Ted says, the insurance response to it is somewhat nebulous. Uh, from a P&I club's point of view, um, if there is a cyber incident uh, that is uh, that, that arises from a non-war event, in other words, it's not a war or terrorism risk, or caused by a war or terrorism risk, then it is in the ordinary way uh, covered 
in, uh, as, a, as a regular P&I exposure. That, in other words, there's no specific exclusion in regard to uh, cyber risk per se. If it were in the context of terrorism or war, then it would fall under the war and terrorist exclusion in any event. And in those circumstances, it wouldn't be recoverable from uh, reinsurance because many of you, or some of you may have heard of the clause that's commonly used uh, at law. It's called CL380. That is a cyber, cyber and biochem actually, but cyber mainly exclusion. Um, if you are a Hull underwriter and you have CL380 on your cover, uh, then, in, and, and Chris can probably correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, um, that, that would prevent uh, a cyber, uh, a claim arising out of a cyber risk uh, where someone was acting with an intent to cause harm, but not necessarily as a war, uh, an act of war, or as an act of terrorism. Supposing, for example, a vessel um, is undergoing uh, is in dry dock, she's undergoing changes to erectus, or there's somebody's come in from um, uh, a technology company, or perhaps in regard to the, uh, the, the IT dimensions of, of the ship's engines, you know, being very modern ships, say, and that individual makes mistakes in regard to resetting it all and rebooting the system. The vessel leaves dry dock, goes out to sea, and uh, runs aground because uh, the engine has failed or the actus has failed or what have you. Um, that, even if the person were acting maliciously, would still be a P&I covered claim in the ordinary way. Uh, so if the person who was rebooting the system would just made a mistake, that would be covered by P&I. And I suggest it would be covered by Hull as well. However, if that person thought, I want to be malicious today, I'm not doing this for any political purpose or for the purpose of terrorism, but I just feel nasty. I want to get back at my employers perhaps. In those circumstances, it might not be covered by Hull underwriters because it was done with an intent to cause harm if there were a Hull cover that included CL38, which is a fairly standard form that's applied to, to Hull covers. But it would still be covered by a P&I club. If it were an act of terrorism, it would be covered by neither. We tend to be sort of a, a, a reactive market and, and sort of industry and sort of waiting to see uh, events unfold and how this could affect me and sort of put all the, the, the information in front of me and then, okay, let's talk about cost and then we'll make a decision about where we go. And I think uh, in this, uh, this sort of demographic of, of cyber and, and what is it, it's, it's still an unknown. Everybody knows that there's an exposure, whether you're an operator uh, a uh, broker, an insurance company, uh, what have you. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that you know, the, the exposure is so real and we're becoming more and more knowledgeable about it and, and just because of sort of the events that have unfolded over the past 12 months, uh, whether inside or out of Marine, you know, the Maersk attack was, was sort of something that, that, that spoke volumes and resonated to, to everybody insofar as the, the realization uh, of what could potentially occur uh, from a business standpoint uh, and the loss of income to get yourself back up and running. To smaller ship owner operators, uh, that event wouldn't necessarily uh, affect you and, and sort of your, your loss, uh, but I guess sort of the, the, the real exposure to an owner of today's uh, world is 
you take, for example, the, the GPS jamming uh, in the Black Sea a couple weeks ago, and to Joe's point, uh, if it was you know, a hostile uh, act of, of uh, Russia to, to jam the GPS or the Ectus, the ship runs aground, uh, and you have in your whole machinery policy this clause 380 cyber exclusion that virtually says if it's due to a malicious act, uh, terrorist war event, you essentially have no cover, then you don't have the coverage support to you for hull for physical damage. P&I does not respond for wreck removal, getting correspondence, salvage. Uh, there is no GA uh, assistance, so you, you are virtually left so to speak, on the hook. And that's sort of the real concern in today's mm -hmm. market is how do you mitigate that loss and what's the cost associated with it? Because that is any one operator's largest exposure right there. So, and you're seeing that more and more. And, and then the question becomes, okay, was it a malicious act? Was it a terrorist event? Was it a warlike peril that you suffered? Okay, and then now prove your loss. So that's sort of the, the intent. The market, though, has sort of begun to offer the buyback of this exclusion, because the reality is, is that that exclusion you're finding in the majority of the whole policies. And everybody's, everybody's insurance intermediary and insurance company should be sort of expressing this to the, the operators of the world, because that is today's greatest exposure. You know, if you go back to sort of the piracy events in 2007 and 8, it, it sort of, it, it's sort of the same thing. Nobody really sort of, understood what was going on, do I buy a piracy policy, what am I getting for it, how does it work, how, does it, how is it triggered, and then you sort of sort the effects unfold with American flag vessels, and then it was sort of that reactive moment where everybody said, okay, uh -huh, okay, this is something that we need to address immediately. And so far as the standardizations in the industry, I think IMO, uh, BIMCO, and Intertanko have done sort of a really good job about the guidelines of, of shipboard operators to, to implement sort of a, a safety management practice in the industry. And, and what we're seeing from our owners and operators is that they are implementing these standardizations across their companies. Uh, and not necessarily that they're looking to sort of buy bespoke cyber policies, but what they're doing is they're trying to mitigate the loss and see where the risk to their company lies and if there is that sort of kink in the chain that they have sort of that knock-on effect where they could be exposed, whether it's from a, a phishing email or, or a malware that, that somebody assumed was coming from a trusted email. You know, how do you sort of go through your day and try to avoid those sorts of exposures? So I think that the, the ship-owning community is doing a great job and to try to implement that into sort of their, their safety management practices. On the insurance side, I think we've actually come a long way from where we were a year ago as far as the products that are offered. We're seeing more and more bespoke cyber policies that are priced accordingly that, that wouldn't sort of come out bankrupting any owner or operator. I think that there's sort of levels of programs that are out there that will fit the need of the small, medium to larger scale companies. But again, it's sort of that, that first step of mitigating the loss and the implementations within the companies that you're starting to see now come home to fruition. And I'm sure John can sort of comment from Sealift's perspective on that. Um, our biggest question, are we insured or not insured? And God forbid anything happened, uh, that's gonna be a hassle um, to try to determine. Uh, with Sealift, um, we're a US flag. Most of our ships are on uh, long-term charter to military Sealift command. And we feel we have an extra protection there because of certain systems that they put on our ships to protect the cargoes uh, that we're carrying. So um, 
we're watching it, and again, we just hope we don't have a claim. Uh, from the other side, I can tell a little story about uh, basically a p and company. I understand they got cyber attack, and they actually paid a claim to a wrong party. Mm. And uh, they were held liable. They had to repay that claim over again. So from uh, a sure side uh, point of view, I think the uh, p and companies have to look at their systems also and have that extra level of protection so this does not happen again. That's never actually happened to, the, I, I, I know of that case, but it's not happily happened to us, although we've had various occasions where, um, I mean, to be honest, rather suspicious when you look into it. Suspicious emails are sent to members of staff, many of them purporting to come from me, saying, <laughs> please pay this money immediately into a certain bank account. But anybody who reads them realizes that that can't be me speaking. Hey, chair. Will you please? Da, 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 da. I don't really address my staff in that way. So, you know, you could always tell if you look very closely. But some of them can be very, very, uh, you know, uh, perplexing, um, and you've got to you've got to be consciously aware of that. We had a ransomware attack actually, uh, the American Club, about uh, six months ago, which we deflected because we have very, very good systems. That was not act it, they, they tried, but they couldn't get in. Thank goodness. They tried, but they couldn't get in because our systems are so well protected. But it's a real problem for a lot of people, obviously. No, it is. And so long as the emails from Joe go, that Joe comes, that's how they come. This is Joe. Please help me. And then let's yeah. see how many people from the company respond. Yes, I know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very few. It speaks and to then something. The, and then the second wave is, yeah. and then the second wave, please transfer some money. But on a more serious note, from a regulatory perspective also, um, it's interesting that uh, the Coast Guard is in process of also implementing cyber regulation, and there was a statement to that effect to, of Radmiral Thomas a couple of months ago. So watch this space. And in addition to that, in, in the international arena, IMO actually in its working group is preparing new cyber regulations. So the field is continuing to, um, to develop from a legal and regulatory uh, point. I see here that we have four minutes left, and I'll open the floor to questions. Well, yes, I, mean, I, I, well, I can't speak for Hull Underwriters, but I think from a P&I club perspective, if there were an incident and it was indeterminate as to what, as you say, that what was in the mind of the person who actually created the problem for the ship owner, then clubs would probably deal with that in the ordinary way and give the benefit of the doubt to the owner, quite honestly, in those circumstances. Um, if it were, if there were a hint of, well, if it were a war risk, I think people would probably be aware of that in the larger context right from the get-go, quite frankly. But um, if it were a matter of somebody uh, purporting to act in a terrorist context, then clubs do have a rule 
saying that what constitutes terrorism in any given case, so far as the exclusion of, is concerned, is a matter for the board of directors to determine. And I should imagine that the, uh, the London Club has a very similar uh, provision in that respect. So there is a, 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 you know, the ship owners themselves will determine in circumstances where it was sought to actually, or the managers were inclined to apply a, a, you know, a, a, an exclusion whether in fact that act was an act of terrorism in, in, in that sort of indeterminate case. But in the ordinary way, uh, a, a cyber event would be covered by a club, I think, um, and assumed to be either accidental or non-terrorist or non-war, absent any evidence to the contrary. Yeah, and I, the beauty of the, the buyback is you're buying it back within the whole policy <coughs> that's an extension to yeah. the war policy. So to sort of get around that scenario, uh, which is an excellent scenario, is that the buyback would be sort of an all-encompassing buyback, and and the real exposure that you have is sort of on your war P and I mm. element. Is you know that's the, sort of the gray area. Will the P and I club come in and say this is a, a war terrorist malicious event, or is it sort of uh, a non malicious event where it is covered? So with the buyback, there is no gray area. It is covered because you're essentially paying for the policy, for the buyback of the policy. Well, and that's, that's the alternative to the buyback. In, in the event that the buyback isn't comprehensive enough or it's too expensive, uh, a, a standalone cyber policy can be purchased. And right now, pricing is, is pretty competitive. We'll see what happens in a few months. But um, there, there's optionality out there right now. Thank you. Are there any other questions? Yes, please. Mr. Shaw. The worst policy you've seen circumstances where it's a malicious event or a terrorist event, more specifically. Why would anyone pay the extra money to buy back a risk that's covered on your war policy? Because you could have circumstances where it isn't war or terrorism, somebody just acting maliciously, but not for a political motive in the case of terrorism or as a war act. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Thank you for this inquisitive audience. Uh, to this inquisitive audience, enjoy the next panel.